Morning, Tom. How are you doing today? John, it's uh, great to see you or at least be with you on this podcast again. Uh, I'm terrific. Well, you were kind enough to uh, talk to us last year about your uh, book, 200 Years of American Financial Panics. And now you have a new book that we briefly mentioned last time, because obviously you were in the midst of working on it. And that's the Unhackable Internet. So I want to get to that. But before I do, um, you you also run something called the Financial Technology and Cybersecurity Center. Tell us a little bit about that. I know you're doing a lot of programming there and sort of what what is it, its mission? Yeah, uh, thanks. Uh, so let me let me do the uh, one minute commercial on it. You know, the Financial Technology and Cybersecurity Center is is sort of a, a uh, an idea that I had with Bob Ledig, who's practiced law with me now for almost 40 years, uh, to basically build a center that looks at technology, the impact on financial services, uh, the risks, the benefits, and how financial services should react. But looking at it, not from the consumer point of view, but from the business point of view and the cybersecurity point of view. And we have been able to attract um, regulators from every major financial uh, regulatory agency in Washington. We've attracted some of the uh, most important people in the industry to talk about, write about, and participate in programs that will, I think, you know, set the stage for the next 20 years of technology, which I think is both enormously beneficial and enormously dangerous <laughs> uh, to financial services. So uh, the subtitle of the book, The Unhackable Internet, is how rebuilding cyberspace can create real security and prevent financial collapse. Now, those of us in the uh, AML community, which has adjacencies to cyber, but it's basically dealing with all the laws and regulations of uh, financial crime writ large, have recognized over the course of the past five, 10 years cybersecurity is so important. If we had this conversation 10 years ago, the AML community would say, yeah, we certainly understand cyber is a problem, but we don't do that, right? That's not, that's not in our world. Those are the, the IT folks, that's corporate security. And that's less and less the case now, not that there are cyber experts in AML, and I'm sure there are some, but it's more, it's definitely not just an adjacency, but it's part and parcel, whether it's in ransomware, phishing, uh, the, the uh, expansion of cryptocurrency, uh, all those issues are so important. I'm struck by uh, your, I would say your optimism in that you can get society to step back and recognize that the creation of the internet, while important, could have been done a lot differently. So let's talk a bit about your, your themes here because, and then I'll ask you some follow-ups, but basically, you know, uh, I'll prejudice part of your answer this way. All of us, especially those of us who've been around a while, we know that we need to do better with, you know, passwords and two-factor authentication, but we tend to be, as a society, pretty lazy, right? And that's why we're so susceptible to all of this. So as you talk about your goals here, how can you fix both the infrastructure, but also the mindset of people to be more cautious and careful and vigilant? Yeah. Well, that's the $64,000 question that I tackle in the book. And and um, not to give away a lot of my thunder, I, I, I talk about solutions. In fact, I've got dozens of solutions in there. And, and what I say 
essentially is we have really gone down a path of convenience. Some might call it sloppiness, some might call it wild west, but we've gone down a technological path of convenience where one thing built upon the next and all of a sudden we ended up with an internet that wasn't created for what we're using it for. So if you go back and you ask any of the pioneers and the founders and the creators of the internet, uh, they would tell you that they either didn't think about security or if they did, they didn't know what the internet was going to be used for and therefore they weren't concerned about security. So here we are, you know, some 60 years later and the internet's being used to house every inch of important personal intimate data on the planet and every ounce of value. And it never was intended to do so, but that makes it a target for every hostile nation, fanatic, creep, terrorist, criminal cartels, you, you know, ransomware specialists. I mean, it's just a honeypot uh, for those kinds of individuals. And as we all know, there are those kinds of individuals There always have been and there always will be. And then you compound that with users' ability to create problems, uh, to be sloppy, to be not vigilant, and to have setups in their homes that are not as impervious to attack as, for example, the security system of a major corporation might be, you end up uh, with an enormous amount of vulnerabilities, weaknesses, and threats and risks in this system. And here's the bottom line, and this is sort of the bottom line that I say in the book. I, I, I have proposed a number of reasonable, workable, practical solutions to this security problem. I interviewed a number of security specialists. I interviewed financial services experts. Uh, and, and I think the, the proposals that I make in the book, while novel and, and perhaps unprecedented, are all reasonable and practical. Uh, the problem is, is that each one of them, or all of them in, 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 in combination with each other, have an increasing unlikelihood of happening, right? You, you just don't see anybody wanting to do dozens of these things to create better authentication, more governance, more enforcement police, zero trust architecture, transparency, all the things I talk about in the book that you would have, for example, that we have in the analog world. I mean, here's here's the real problem I see, John. We are moving our entire analog lives to cyberspace, locks and barrel, everything that's important. But in the real world, we have locks on our doors We have fences around our properties. We have borders around our countries and we have police and armies to enforce the rules. So why are we putting everything important and of value to us in a virtual reality that has none of that? It makes no sense. I mean, you don't ask anybody to come into your home and rifle through your personal papers. But social media is sort of the functional equivalent of that. And so... What I say in the book is, I think the chances that a lot of these solutions will happen is somewhere between slim and none. I try to be very practical. And so what I suggest at the end is what we need to do is keep the internet that we've got, keep the pipes 
the 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 stairways and the the transmission settings and everything that we've got and build upon that or build next to it it's either a layering or it's a supplemental sidecar something and i describe what that something is but a new vehicle that will be used for critical infrastructure communications and transmissions and that's what i'm concerned about i'm concerned about critical infrastructures uh, being accessible and transmitting information over the open architecture of the internet and being available to any 'er ne'er-do-well, anybody sitting in China who wants to hack, and and all the rest of the the bad folks in the world who, who for whatever reason, want to disrupt something. And so it is possible to do that. We can do it. Will it slow down internet transactions? Probably. Will it be less convenient for users? Probably. But at the end of the day, what I say is the following. If you had your choice of a little slower movement on the internet, and that trade-off got you greater security to ensure that your money would be in its account tomorrow morning, would you choose to take the option of a slower internet? And I think most people would if you told them their money wasn't going to disappear tomorrow morning as it can today. You know, um, I, I hear everything you're saying, and I and obviously agree with the substance. Just knowing human nature, though, you're right. We've got to a point now. I can remember several years ago when remote deposit capture was first offered. Um, you know, would be wait a second. I could take a picture of my check, and it could go into my into my account. And obviously, it's now sort of well accepted. Although law enforcement has said for quite a while that it's a it, it's a riskier proposition you know remote deposit capture at least un, under the the bsa examiners was something that they always wanted to know what the bank was doing in terms of security so long-winded way of saying that uh even though law enforcement will come out with their outreach about be careful about passwords and authentication all that kind of stuff it seems that what you need here is a two-pronged approach one is if you're going to put in that infrastructure, it's got to be a combination. You tell me if I'm right, private and public sector working together. But the second part of it is messaging. Can you message what you just said a few minutes ago that if if there's a guarantee or at least a better guarantee that the monies, uh, your monies are going to stay intact, but it's going to be a slower process. Would you accept that given the world we're in where people are using TikTok and 10, 10 seconds, they lose their train of thought? It's probably hard to do that part of it, but you got to do it together, right? You have to do both the infrastructure potential changes, but also the messaging has to be done by both. I, I tell me again, a private and public sector, and you're not going to convince everybody, but if you convince a good a large swath of people that maybe you can get closer to what you're, you're proposing in the book. Yeah, absolutely, John. I mean, I think you put your finger on some of the problems, which I try to rip apart and expose in the book. And for example, one of the problems is is that we look to the government to protect us online, but 95% of the internet, the web, and, and everything that's, uh, that's connected to it are owned by corporations and individuals, right? So it's a peculiar situation. I mean, when Sony was attacked by North Korea, or you know, allegedly North Korea, I don't think anybody seriously doubts it, but right. mm-hmm. when they were allegedly uh, attacked by North Korea, uh, federal law prohibited Sony from hacking back. I mean, even if they had the capability to defend themselves and attack back, 
They're not allowed to under U.S. federal law. That purview is with the government. And uh, President Biden has said just in the last two weeks, he's increasing the efforts of the United States to hack back and to defend itself. But here's the problem that that the defense, the hack back and and the, and in effect, the the the, uh, the quid pro quo for that kind of action falls into the hands of the government. And then the government sort of evaluates that in the political process. So it falls into the hands of diplomats and politicians to decide when, under what circumstances and how to meet out payback. And so that's a serious defect in the entire process, which leads me to conclude that, yes, it has to be, the fix has to be a public-private fix, but it's got to be generated by the private sector. The private sector has got to go to the, go to the legislators and say, we need this fix on a global basis. We have to get it done. So when will that happen? It's not going to happen when, until two things occur. One is we have a financial Pearl Harbor or financial Armageddon and everybody's money is gone for three weeks or a month and right. nobody can do anything. And people say, well, what's the government doing? Well, then, you know, like a like a banking crisis, something will happen. Right. That's number one. The other part of the dilemma is the uh, the, the, the pure economic formula for, for businesses. So why aren't businesses going to the Hill right now and saying this is unsustainable? I mean, in two, 2015, Jamie Dimon's letter to shareholders for JP Morgan said that 20% of the workforce was devoted to regulatory compliance and cybersecurity. 20%, that's 43,000 employees right. work on regulatory compliance and cybersecurity. At a cost, uh, you know, of, of ten billion dollars a year. That was in 2015. Those kinds of costs, cybersecurity in the United States is going to cost upwards of, of 400 billion dollars this year. Those kinds of costs are unsustainable. So at some point, at some point, corporate America will say, "Well, wait a minute. You know, we can't. We can no longer stay on this track. We're no longer making the kinds of money from the internet." we thought we were making because we have to offset it with the costs of cybersecurity. When that, when that formula gets out of whack and corporations and businesses realize that they're on a path that is unsustainable, that's when they will go to the hill. So look, individuals need to see a crisis. Corporations need to see a financial formula that makes sense to them. And Richard Clark says in, in one of his books on cybersecurity and mm -hmm. He's really done a terrific job writing three or four books uh, in this area after his tenure as the White House czar for, I think, three or four presidents. You know, what he basically says, it's so hard to get traction on some of this stuff, because unlike a bomb that falls in the Ukraine um, in, in this war, where you see the devastation, you never see or feel the devastation of a cyber attack, right? It's very often, you know, not visible or it's in another country. But look, the, the, the Armageddons have happened. You know, they've happened in other countries and they've happened in pieces and parts around the world. If you put them all together, uh, you can actually see a country stop working. So if you take what happened in Estonia in 2007, when the Russians allegedly shut everything down, because of a dispute over the placement of a statute in the capital of Estonia and, and banking stopped and, and, news, and news reporting stopped and television stopped. 
you take what happened in Ukraine before the before the war broke out in terms of how their cyber systems completely went down. You take what happened in Brazil in 2016 when the banking system of one large financial institution disappeared for several days. I mean, those are the kinds of things, if you put them all together, that's the financial Armageddon that can happen. It hasn't happened here yet. There's been bits and pieces of it. But there's no doubt the experts tell you it could happen tomorrow morning. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things that were that are out there. That's the trajectory we're on. And the only question in my mind is when people actually get serious about fixing this problem. You know, um, going back to the to the theme of, of messaging in our and going back in, in our world, to the anti money laundering world, one of the things that the banking agencies have talked about for the past five, six years is supporting innovation. So that's, that's always good. You know, the OCC and the other agencies have said, we want to be, we want, we want our uh, member institutions to be free to innovate so they can improve, be more efficient, all those sorts of things. And then on, on the second hand of that, you will hear some of the bankers say, well, you know what? I talked to my examiner and I said, I'm using, I'm going to be using a new, tracking system or, or transaction monitoring system and they say okay if you're going to try that but make sure you don't miss anything as you're running parallel systems so you know it's sort of counterintuitive on the one hand they say innovate improve but on the other hand they say hmm. but make sure you don't make mistakes we got to disabuse them of that mindset not that you want institutions to make mistakes but if you're going to innovate, and this is a this is a smaller version of your your point about changing the internet, there has to be buy-in to uh, to know that there's going to be some issues as you as you improve. So so I think this goes back to if you were to ask somebody at the OCC high level, oh no, we we don't we don't tell our examiners to to tell the institutions that, but that's what's happening or it does happen. You know, it's it's anecdotal, but it does happen. So I think you need a across the board messaging program besides all the things that you're recommending which again it's just hard uh, but it has to be constant and it has to be buy-in from not just agencies or, or you know regulatory agencies but law enforcement policymakers, and unfortunately as you know and, and we're not spring chickens either a lot of the policymakers are in their 70s and 80s and don't really understand technology so i think it's it's important that we you know, that we have a massive strategy. And I, I'm thinking that your book could be uh, hopefully a big start in that in that direction. Yeah. And the other problem, John, is the, is, is the Internet and then all this technology is global. I mean, the United States does yeah. control it. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and you try to make changes on a global basis. And man, is that is that running uphill? But, uh, you know, you raise some interesting points, which I expose and, and talk about in the book. You know, number one. What's out of balance here is, is is the mesmerization and hypnotism of technology against the concern for security. I'm not saying that technology shouldn't be where it is. I'm not saying that we shouldn't innovate. In fact, the innovations and the improvements to the quality of human life from technology have been massive in the last 20 years. Sure. Unfortunately, though, we have been blinded and hypnotized by that and have underemphasized the need for security and the need to eliminate vulnerabilities. So to prove that point, I, I went back and I read 
and I, I have them in, I have them all listed in the appendix in a book and I talk about them, the hundred government documents that have occurred over the last 25 years. It's close to 100, 97 or something like that, uh, on technology in the financial services space, just in financial services space and, and cybersecurity. There's 100 executive orders by presidents, congressional reports, private uh, reports by organizations. Uh, and I read them all. And one of the things I did is I ran a search in each one of them for two words. One word was innovation, and the other word was cybersecurity. And you will not be shocked when I tell you that every single report coming out of a political uh, you know, person or organization emphasized innovation and jobs. And oh, yes, every once in a while talked about cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. And it was like 99 references to innovation to one reference to cybersecurity in some of these reports. And, you know, and it gives you the sense of where we have gotten out of balance and where we've gotten sort of misdirected here. And I think everybody agrees that technology is, is, is somewhat hypnotic and it's mesmerizing. We love to open those packages and get new iPhones and new computers and hook them up and see what they do. And you make one click, you know, on something and all of a sudden the New York Yankees are right in front of you. Right. And, you know, you say, who put the Yankees in my computer? Well, <laughs> that kind of that kind of mesmerizing impact tends to, uh, you know, dampen our concerns for security. And then you add on from a corporate point of view, the money that can be made by being first out in the market with software, whether it's good software or defective software, to being first in, in, in an area of a new product, in getting an online feature out to their customers, in competing in ways that technology would provide that you never could do before. I mean, that race has constantly sort of blurred the balance between innovation and, and security. And now I think we're paying the price. All of these um, breakdowns that have occurred, and you can list all of them, you know, from OPM, SolarWinds, Colonial Pipeline, JBS, uh, Lodge 4J, Capital One, JP Morgan, Equifax, DNA, you know, you just go through the list. Right. All of these things, you know, indicate that, that we are defenseless. <laughs> We're absolutely defenseless when somebody really wants to get in there and do something. Uh, and that we're on a trajectory, as I suggested, that I think is unsustainable. So what I'm arguing for here is a rebalancing of priorities uh, to avoid a financial Armageddon or a financial Pearl Harbor, uh, because those, those have happened in smaller ways around the world. They can happen here. Uh, and you know, rather than facing that and facing the music when that happens, we need individuals, businesses, and government to come together and say, we need to fix. We don't need to replace, rebuild. We need to fix the internet and build the kinds of security, secure networks that, we, that can sustain this future. And one of the things I talk about in the book, John, and you'll, you'll relate to this. When I started in banking in 1976, there were no open architecture internets that any bank would ever, ever consider itself willing to be on. They were all sure. proprietary, secure, private networks 
between you and the Fed, you and MasterCard, whoever the case may be. It was when in 1994, when Standard Federal Credit Union in California became the first financial, you know, regulated, insured financial institution to have an online banking interface that the world changed Mm -hmm. because now every bank in the world had opened itself up to the open architecture of the Internet. And what does that mean? Well, it means you're you're swimming in the same swampy waters with everybody in Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, and every criminal cartel and every terrorist. I mean, think about it for a moment. What environment is it where we allow ourselves to be in the same room, the same machine, the same capacity with people that are hostile to us? It's really a remarkable sort of environment. But that's the kind of thing that I think uh, we've got to try to fix. And I talk about going back to secure private networks for critical infrastructures. That's possible. It's practical. Will it be inconvenient? Sure. So uh, this has been fascinating. Um, I urge everybody, the book actually will be released on Amazon and other places February 15th. It's the Unhackable Internet how rebuilding in cyberspace can prevent real security and prevent financial collapse. Tom, I'll get you out of here on this. Um, and not this is not a facetious premise, but would you recommend to, to deal with all the uh, goals and strategies that you put in place in the book, a what I would call sort of a 9-11 commission type report? You just you, you get a bipartisan group of policymakers, but you get people from private sector, public sector, experts in this space, not to go away for years, but to sort of dive into this and, and deal with what's doable. I hate to use that word, but what's doable and what is more challenging. Would, would that be something if you were, again, not being facetious, if you were in charge and you said, I want people to take a look at all the, the recommendations here. But this is something where we need both bipartisanship from a policy standpoint, but we need uh, private-public partnership conversation. Would that be a way to to move uh, something as dramatic as trying to change the way we uh, perceive the internet today? Yeah, you know, I'm of two minds of that on that, John. Uh, I wrote an op-ed probably in 2021 uh, proposing a commission just like that, but composed okay. of government private sector, academics, tacticians, technicians, uh, strategists alike, you know, to try to, to come up with a, with a game plan to move forward on a global basis, uh, understanding all of the difficulties uh, that may create. Uh, the problem, however, is history. And, and what I'll say about that is history over the last 25 years is littered with reports and recommendations and commissions that have, you know, tried to broach the subject, not as, as sort of frankly as I am, and, and none of those have gone anywhere. And the other thing that, that, that you'll see in the historical overview that I provide in the book is the Clinton administration got all this right. They understood the problem. They understood what the future was going to bring, both in terms of innovation and insecurity. And every president since then has sort of repackaged President Clinton's executive directive on cyber and cybersecurity, right? And every single president, including Joe Biden on May 12, 2021, repackaged it and 
restated it and everybody came out and said, this is great. We're going to focus on this. Well, I looked at it and I said, it's just more of the same over the last 25 years where we've made extraordinarily small progress. But here's the bottom line. Every one of those executive orders by every one of those presidents since President Clinton has delegated the process of coming up with cybersecurity solutions to 24 federal agencies, right? You know, and I know, when something is delegated to 24 people, never mind federal agencies, nobody's responsible, nothing will get done, and it'll just be a footnote in history that we pass over, and that is what has happened every single time. So at the end of the day, I, I say in the book that this is a problem of leadership. We know the questions, we know the answers, it's a problem of leadership. And oh my goodness, if that isn't the principal issue in this country today, I don't right. know what it is. Oh, Tom, you're so so spot on, of course. Uh, Tom Vartanian, thank you for spending some time and sharing your insight. Really appreciate it. Uh, strongly recommend that folks take a look at this book when it's out in the next few days, early next week. And we'll have follow-up conversations with you because I want to uh, delve into some of the other specifics in the report and hopefully are in the book and hopefully becomes a report and that if we can't message this to policymakers, but thank you for spending time with us today. Really appreciate it. And we'll talk again soon. John, always a pleasure to be with you. Take care. 